1: Today, we have part two of our exciting episode with a friend of mine, a great waterfowl expert, Dr. Chris Nicolai, waterfowl scientist with Delta Waterfowl. We are going to continue our discussion about markers of waterfowl and how we use them to collect all sorts of cool data on waterfowl populations, uh, waterfowl behaviors, and yeah, it's just a, a part two of this super exciting episode. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back again. Uh, this has been fun. And if you, uh, if, if a listener is out there and you haven't listened to episode one yet, I encourage you to do so. It'll kind of fill you in on the background of all this sort of stuff. Today, we're going to jump right into some of the different type of markers that uh, that we as waterfowl scientists have used. That many of our listeners as waterfowl hunters will have encountered. Hopefully. And we'll hopefully have provided that information uh, back to us as a waterfowl research community. We're going to talk about the importance of that as we go through this. And so, hope you get some some good information and appreciation for the, the tremendous importance of this data. And how you as a hunter or as, as an observer of waterfowl and some of these with some of these markers can contribute to the science that drives our conservation and management of this resource and has done so for, well, let's see, getting close to a hundred years and will continue into the future. So, Chris, let's pick up and start talking about what is it we want to talk about here first? Um, banding, the most common. Marker out there, the one that most people will be familiar with. There are Facebook groups dedicated to bands, uh, band information. Um, people that like to to show off the bands that they that they from the birds that they harvest. Uh, people are fascinated by this. There's it's, we introduced it on in the previous episode. Really was that Frederick Lincoln is sort of the father of bird banding and waterfowl bird banding and and what it it allowed us to learn in the in the early days and you know the we might even talk about the whole Lincoln Peterson estimate and how that came about and what we do with it from from banding data so hey let's start at the at the basics when we say bands we're talking leg bands give us give us the the lowdown what what are those how do we put them on, uh, and when does all that occur?
2: A metal band is kind of like the basic of everything. You know, if we do anything to a bird, uh, put a radio on it, usually pull blood, feather, you know, blood samples, feathers, et cetera, We usually give it a band, so it's the most common denominator. And you know, you gotta go out. I was reading on the BBL, you know, Bird Banding Lab website. There's about six thousand permitted banders out there right now. And, uh, you know, to get a band or get a permit, you got to have some experience, you know, be mentored for quite a while. You got to apply for it. And then they actually ask, uh, you know, other banders that know you for reference letters and stuff. You know, I've had to fill out a lot of those for my past students or colleagues, et cetera. And so you got to be qualified to do this. And, you know, they give you the permit. Sometimes you got to get some other state permits or tribal permits, et cetera. And then they issue you bands, you know, USGS, standard bands you know they're all made the same deals with you know reporting rates and you know just a central clearing house for for gathering the stuff you know smart stuff people thought about you know back you know in Frederick Lincoln's days and stuff you know just good standardized get a lot of the extra noise out of the data keep it simple so yeah so you get these bands and um you know in the most simple applications you know for a lot of our harvest regulations and some of the Lincoln estimates, stuff like that, Uh, you know, we know when we put them out and then we know when a hunter or somebody of the public finds them again. You know, you could find a dead bird on the side of the road, you know, wood ducks come down fireplace chimneys and dies in there because it thought it was a cavity, you know, all kinds of different ways to find that. And basically you can make a dot for where it was put on and a dot where it was found. And draw a straight line that's totally uninformative between those two and you know like we were mentioning in the prior episode you know using all these different math ratio kind of approaches to, to estimate some pretty basic stuff you know and as we move away from metal bands I'd say what we're trying to do is put more dots and more encounters between that initial dot and the terminal dot you know what did it do all between there and that's where technology and effort is open. You know, how many dots do you really want to fill between those two?
1: Chris, you've you gave about a three minute response there to my question, and as you were talking, I had about a half dozen questions come to mind that I imagine our listeners are are also are, are also thinking of. So I might go a bit off script here. I am glad you mentioned the the master banders. The one thing that we have to say here is there are a host of people. Now and in the past, that have been instrumental in in the banding program that we have across North America. The U.S. Geological Survey Bird Banding Lab is sort of the coordinating entity, at least here in the states. For uh, do they? What's? I'm going to pause right here, uh, Chris. Fill me in on what's the role of the USGS Bird Banding Lab with regard to birds deployed in Canada? Those are those go through the through that same BBL, right?
2: Yeah, the database is, as far as I know, is shared. Now, when you do go banding in Canada, like I've done before, you know, you got to get a Canadian banding permit. Um, Super nice folks. Very similar process, Um, you know, and they register the bands in Canada, but they're the same bands. You know, they're all getting reported with the same methodology. You know, with the reportband.gov site these days. so very high level coordination where it's almost seamless.
1: It's one of those things where it's something I take for granted. But then whenever I start talking about it, I'm like, wait a minute, is that really? <laughs> it's like you hear yourself talking out loud, and you want to pause and make sure that it's correct. And so, yeah, of course, that's the way. That's the way it works. To follow up or to continue on with what I was saying is that yes, there are a host of federal, state uh, and, and whole other entities that have private individuals that have contributed through the years to the waterfowl banding program across North America. Those people have put in the hard work, have put in the dedication to make this happen. The other side of that, of the participants in in us deriving value from banding data, or the hunters and everyone else that encounters a band and reports those bands through the website now, and so a huge thank you and recognition to all of those individuals, all of those agencies that are responsible for the success of our of our use of the waterfowl banding program. You mentioned that there are different ways that people can encounter banded birds. Uh, Harvest is going to be the number one way that we're familiar with, but there are car strikes. I've, uh, working in California, encountered dead ducks along the side of the road that were struck by cars as they tried to cross the road, and I would always stop and check to see if the bird was banded. You mentioned how there are other just sort of random encounters of banded birds, of dead birds. If a person were to come across one of those encounters outside of hunting, should they report those, and would they report those through the same avenue that they do
2: all the no, I highly encourage uh, reporting those bands, and yeah, exactly the same way, and, you know, they've done really good. That website's been fun, you know. Back in my first days, I mean, you had to write a, a letter that had a really vague address, and you'd hope you included everything, and, you know, the poor person at the bird banning lab is probably hoping you included everything in your letter, too, you know, and then it went to a phone number where you're actually talking with people at the bird banning lab, but, you know, that gets expensive. You know, those are trained biologists answering phones. And it went to a call service for a while where, you know, it was just a general person that might have been taking an order for some company's catalog on the prior call. And, you know, you couldn't get that back and forth. But then, you know, with the development of the website, it's evolved over time and it's pretty neat. You know, it's it's pretty easy to get in there. It's like, okay, what kind of bird did I see? What kind of marker did I run into, you know, was this a wing marker? Was this a neck collar? What color was the background of the neck collar? And what color was the engraved letters? And, you know, was it on the left leg or on the right leg? And there's a lot of neat stuff in there that that makes it pretty user friendly. Uh, you know, I think we're at the simplest it's ever been to report a band. So yeah, anytime you record or run into a Mark Bird, you know, a Mark Blackbird, a Mark Chickadee, you know, cool duck or whatever, you know, get on the the website and you should be able to, you know, report it and get a cool little certificate about uh, where that bird was initially marked.
1: Now, Chris, there are other bands out there that you cannot or that you will not uh, that, that are not curated through the USGS Bird Banding Lab. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those, but let's start with this. And you see this on social media increasingly where people will post a picture of this this bird that's banded. It has some obscure band on it. Uh, and you mentioned the outset, what made me think of this is the fact that you have to be permitted to capture and band wild ducks, wild birds, wild migratory birds. And so, a lot of those bands that, let's say, may not be official USGS uh, bands, they could come from a number of different sources. Uh, Some, quite frankly, may be illegal bandings. I don't know how common that is, but others could be uh, farm-raised ducks, right, that an individual bands on their property, and maybe that bird exits the farm and finds itself harvested over some decoys um that that happens as well right
2: yeah and that's a that's an interesting topic too you know i've been involved with those discussions for years you know especially with delta now you know we've got a lot of interest in this atlantic flyway mallard reductions and in, in limits lately and you know i'm learning a lot about the the released european strain mallards that you know you've definitely done some other interviews or podcasts with and you know, you got to step back a little bit. This one gets really confusing fast. So think about, you know, a domestic Toulouse goose, you know, that you can buy the goslings from a feed store in the spring, you know, Easter, you know, everyone loves buying a little gosling and you can buy bands for these, you know, it's totally legal. Um, put them on and the goose flies off, you know, and then someone accidentally shoots it and, and sees it, um, you know, and that's all just fine. You know, no, nothing questionable has gone on at all. But what gets interesting, you know, is a long history of releasing mallards in the Atlantic Flyway. You know, state agencies were doing it. Hunt clubs were doing it. And there's a lot of versions of, you know, what we should be doing. You know, sometimes they used standard bands. Other times they're like, no, you guys go ahead and use your own bands. And, you know, as you've known, talking with Lavretsky, you know, are these birds even mallards? And, you know, it kind of questions some of the legal mumbo-jumbo we deal with. You know, they're genetically very different, these eastern mallards that are being released, are they even covered under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that, you know, uh, the bird banning lab works under. And so, I mean, no fault of anybody's, but we've had a lot of different versions of banding in that example. Um, you know, there's still aviculturists out there, you know, I have a lot of good friends that have beautiful bird collections and sometimes weather happens. You know, these guys have totally legal birds. They're marking them so that they know how old, this Drake Kamenider is versus that Drake Kamenider. You know, they can't tell Fred from from Bill in the pen. And, you know, a storm comes and knocks that netting down and this bird escapes and it has a non-USGS band on it. I mean, things happen. Um, you know, you get into some neat stuff, you know, like Jack Miner back in the day, um, you know, that, that outfit uh, or that individual back in the day really set the stage for a lot of what we do operationally now. And, you know, someone like that uh, grandfathered in a little bit, and there's a little bit of leeway just out of respect for the outfit, and, you know, they still continue uh, using different bands, but yeah, it's it's a really tricky one, um, you know, of being able to use different metal bands, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of them where they, you don't really know where they came from, and it, it's unfortunate, because people get really excited, and it's like, yeah, no one, you can't even find out who put that on originally to find out information, and it's unfortunate.
1: So, Chris, what happens when someone goes to that reportband.gov website and tries to enter a band, uh, the number of a band that, let's say, is not a USGS um, band? What kind of, I mean, I, I'm obviously not going to find it in the database. Does it just give them a, a message back that, hey, it's, it's
2: not in here? We don't recognize this number? Yeah, I guess I've, you know, I just have always known better that those non-USGS bands are probably not going to get looked up. But, It's very similar to finding, you know, like a neck collar or a web tag or whatever, where that's not the primary data entry for that website. So I'd be willing to bet it either bounces back, you know, with an email that they'll follow up on, or most hunters, you know, find that contact us email and then, you know, start emailing directly. And, you know, like web tags, Um, you know, I was analyzing web tags 15, 20 years ago, and Back then, it was really tricky, where now there's actually buttons on, you know, that website to be able to record those and you know, it comes to the bander.
1: We're going to get into web tags here a bit later on. But I want to go back to bands here and other types of bands because I know people are going to be thinking about this as they're listening to it. And then we're going to talk about some of the some of what we get from uh, from banding data, how it's applied. Reward bands. Talk to us a little about that. Why do we do those? How often are they are they deployed? Is there sort of a constant supply of those going on? What's the What's the story behind some of those reward bands?
2: I'd say I've I've seen two. examples. Examples of of why reward bands have been used. Uh, we'll talk the first one really briefly because it's kind of the more uncommon one. But you know, some radio projects, you know, will put a reward band on just to help ensure that that radio gets reported and usually sent back. You know, so we can get it out on another bird. Simple as that. You know, just encouraging guys to get them back. And then the second one is the more common approach and. And what it is is we know that not every band gets reported that gets shot. You know, when we do a lot of these statistics that we talked about, you know, we're est- we're trying to estimate the probability that it was shot and reported. Then you could probably even add on and retrieved, um, you know, all this. Because sometimes you'll shoot a banded bird and it cripples off and you don't find it. You know, so we got to deal with that with our extrapolation for this. We also have to extrapolate for the bands that don't get reported. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there Um you know, that everyone's going to find your secret spot or you just don't want to help the government, et cetera. But it's one of those nuisance parameters that, you know, we need to deal with. And, you know, the service has been really good about estimating this for a number of birds. You know, mallards are very common. Uh, We do a lot of assumptions that reporting rates don't vary among species. Uh, You know, there was a postdoc back in, what, the mid-2000s that actually looked at uh, reporting reporting rates on, on geese, you know, so there's a bunch of reward bands put on geese, but what they're doing is putting out, and we do it with morning doves as well, morning doves, you know, it's operational these days, it pretty much just happens every year with the doves, because they don't need to do as many of those, but it, it does cost a lot of money, you know, so it doesn't get done every year in a perfect world, it would, but, you know, given these rewards out these days that are typically, I, th- I think they're a hundred bucks, but they're, might be some exceptions to that, but, you know, they're looking at putting out a bunch of normal bands and comparing the proportion of those that get called back in and uh, compare them to reward bands and the proportion that get called back in. And you're assuming that every reward band gets reported. And uh, so you adjust it. Usually, you know, this day and age, well, I think over time, it's increased from like 33% reportings to, you know, the low 90s now. You know, just as, you know, back, we talked earlier about sending a handwritten letter and uh, some vague address on the band and now being able to do it while your dog's still shaking off in the blind from the, the band you just shot. You know, it's it's really fast and efficient these days.
1: Yeah, we saw a big bump up in that reporting rate whenever the 1-800 number was, was included, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then that Kind of increased reporting rate has continued, uh, continued to this day. Uh, maybe even ticked up a little bit. I'm not as familiar with exactly what that trend looks like, but yeah. So the idea of those those re- reward bands is money is a motivator, and as you said, we're assuming that all of those m- reward bands that's going to provide a monetary incentive is going to lead to you know we we assume 100 percent reporting of those, and so. Then, by simple comparison of those of that reporting rate to the one for the non-reward bands, yeah, you got your adjustment that you're talking about there. Does I think you I think you mentioned this? These are not ongoing. Let's say constantly because of the expense associated with it. They do these periodically just to sort of do a check on reporting rates. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's pretty much whenever things um, you know change in the reporting. You know, when we went when the eight hundred number was initially implemented, you know, good time to let's see how this changes. Then they made bands that had, uh, you know, they started the the website as well. So we had bands there for a while that had the www.reportband.gov and the 800 number on it. And then, you know, data, people started looking at it. It's like, boy, you know, we're getting most of these recoveries from the website anyways. So now we have new bands, you know, just in the last four years or so that, you know, have the only the www site. On it twice. And uh, just, yeah, the, the round we're in right now is pretty much just looking at what is it? How has it changed when all we have is the, the website?
1: Chris, let's begin to talk about. We introduced this on the previous episode, but I want to talk about it again. The specific.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport.
1: applications of banding data and why it's so important for us to continue banding operations as well as to encourage reporting of bands when they are encountered. Why is it so important? What are the primary estimates that we're getting from banding and how are they used?
2: I think this is the most exciting part. Um, You know, I was talking with you before we started this podcast where I kind of lumped banding into four different categories. And this is where I think a lot of hunters don't know a lot of information about this. So I, I find it a lot of fun to talk about. It gets gets a guy to be able to nerd out a little bit and get into the really fun, quasi-esoteric, general ecology stuff, because I think that's the really most exciting stuff. So I'll quickly uh, just go through four four different ways we use banning data. One is for just simple harvest regs, you know, what proportion of them are getting shot, where they're going, stuff like that. Then you get into these individual-based Uh, projects where, you know, you're measuring birds, you're encountering them a bunch. You know, a lot of the neat, like Arctic goose stuff I got to work with, or, you know, some of this individual heterogeneity. Then uh, another one that's relatively new is this Lincoln estimate stuff. You know, our mid-continent Arctic geese now are almost all managed off Lincoln estimates. So that's how we estimate population size. So a lot of the Arctic goose banding in the mid-continent feeds directly into these Lincoln estimates. And then the fourth category is what I just roughly put into recreational banding, and that's when you're out trying to do your banding, but you're catching these other birds. You know, you catch the odd ruddy duck or the odd blue-winged teal or the odd redhead, and you slap a band on it, but guess what? Everybody keeps doing that every year for a long time, and all of a sudden you've got these data sets, especially in this day and age with these new analytical techniques, and all of a sudden we've got these accidental data sets that are... Worth their weight in gold, you know. We're seeing some of that happening now with pintail data. Um, so yeah, so those four four reasons we band birds, and basically, when a hunter shoots one, for the most part, you can't really tell what kind of project this was related to, and it'd be impossible to, for us to tell you. Um, but yeah, still just report it like you always do, and you know, you might be able to to follow up on it. I always hear from banders. I I got a text the other night, eleven o'clock, from a guy in Idaho thanking me for banding birds because it was his first mallard he ever got. You know, a lot of the banders are happy to talk with hunters, so you might learn a little more.
1: Chris, I think what I want to do is go through each of those four, at least three of those four. We'll talk about the recreational banding if there's any specific there, but I want to explore those in a bit more detail. So give us an idea of some of the most important rates, demographic rates or estimates that we get from banding data that are used in harvest management. How are they... Uh, How are they used? Just kind of help us understand a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so for the harvest stuff, you know, these are estimates that are identified by the flyway, you know, tech sections usually. Um, You know, they want to feed into Mallard AHM, so like the Atlantic... Mallard model you know is hungry for data. so they say, okay, we're going to do these goals, collect this data similar for the midcontinent, similar for the Western mallard model. And there's some other data sets like that, you know eastern wood ducks, uh, black ducks, you know those are operational banding things where the states chip in through the flyway process, the feds chip in and it's this is what we're doing. this is what we need And that helps with looking at harvest rates. Um, you know harvest derivation, where are the birds? Guys are shooting down south. Where are they coming from? You know, where are these important production areas? And, um, you know, and beyond that, everybody else is banding for other reasons. Well, with the exception of the Lincoln Estimates, now that they've been incorporated into the mid-continent Arctic Goose management plans, you know, that is very similar to the operational banding where everyone's chipping in because it feeds into our harvest decisions, you know, which are basically legally binding plans, you know, so that we don't get sued for, For harvest of these mic birds.
1: So using harvest rate as one of the examples that we're gonna get here for harvest management. Um help me on this. You're gonna know this better than I do. There's something called direct recovery rates, indirect recovery rates. Direct recovery rates relate to the birds that are banded and recovered in the same year. Indirect recovery is a bird that is banded in one year and then it's recovered a year or or more beyond that, that banding uh, instance. Do I have that right?
2: Yep. Okay. Nope, you did that exact. And those are that, that the gets into the fun stuff so like a direct recovery exactly like you said it gets it only has the first hunting season involved now it gets different I mean if you band a bird right before duck season its direct recovery rate could be a lot different than a bird banded right after the prior hunting season ended but that's they're both still direct recovery rates and then an indirect like you mentioned is it's got it's getting shot at least its second hunting season it's been exposed to Um, It already survived one, so it very well has a survival component in it as well. And, um, yeah, we can do a lot of neat stuff. Like for Lincoln estimates right now, we're only using direct recovery rates, um, you know, from preseason banded birds. And there's a big assumption in there that between banding and harvest, there's no natural mortality going on, you know, where we can actually use that for those postseason banded birds that we talked about where we know there's some natural mortality because they're banded six, seven, eight months before those preseason banded birds. So that's why, in our cleanest data sets, we're trying to ban birds where there's the least amount of natural mortality occurring between putting the band out and it being available for harvest. So that's why a lot of these harvest derived needs are coming from preseason banded samples.
1: I want to clarify some of the lingo that you and I are using. I try to stay attuned to that, but uh, probably going to miss some of these. But I picked up only a couple there. Preseason banding—the time we're talking about pre-hunting season—that banding occurs generally. What's the, the what? What are the dates where that banding occurs, uh, uh, Chris?
2: For most of us that you know partake in that, opening day of preseason banding is usually around July fifteenth for us. Um, you know, that's where we assume from July 15th until the local opening hunting season, there's no, you know, very little natural mortality going on. But, you know, something that's tricky in there is opening day Is varies in a lot of different places. You know, in Alaska and some parts of Canada, you know, opening day is September 1st. But yet, you know, if you're down in Arkansas wanting to do preseason banding, you could have still been doing it till what, two or three weeks ago? So there's, you know, a good two-month period there where closing day of preseason banding varies a little bit.
1: But generally, the majority of that preseason banding will come to a halt when around the end of August. Is that is that fair? Maybe into early September?
2: Yeah, yeah. it all depends on where you're at and what you're dealing with for for legal components of your catching. You know, if you're using bait and stuff, you know, there's a legal requirement to not be influencing movement of birds, what, up to 10 days before opening day of hunting season. But, you know, if you're catching some, uh, you know, catching birds in a way that you're not using bait, you can go right up till sunset the the night before opening day.
1: And then post-season
2: banding, we're talking about
1: post-hunting season is when that occurs, right? And that's going to be a lot of the winter banding that we, uh, that we that's going on. And that's gone on occasionally through the years back in, was it the 70s or 80s? Maybe in the 70s, there was a very large, ambitious winter banding study that was conducted to to really provided some foundational understanding of of survival rates during the non-breeding season. If you're banding from two different, during two different time periods, and if you make some assumptions about the source of the birds, you can estimate, you can partition annual survival into two different components across the year. And so uh, there was a lot of that that went on in the 70s, maybe into the 80s, I could be getting that wrong, but then it's it's picked up a bit here in recent years a number of people are, are are doing some winter banding for a number of reasons there, uh, but that's what we refer to when we talk about uh, postseason. Generally stated, there's some that occurs like some I know some research studies that are ongoing right now in Arkansas and West Tennessee and maybe in some other areas are marking birds with a lot of these satellite transmitters. And they're capturing birds right now, middle of hunting season, because they're trying to put these transmitters out to, so they can collect the data required to answer the research questions. And they're banding those birds at that same time, right? That's kind of what you were talking about. Anytime you catch a bird, even if you put a transmitter on it, nasal disc or whatever else, in 99 plus percent of the time, or maybe even 100% of the time, that bird's also going to get a
2: band, Right. Yeah, and that pre- and post-season stuff, you know, like you were talking late 70s, early 80s, as all part of the stabilized regs experiment where they were, um, yeah, that, that experiment we don't need to talk about, but what they are trying to do exactly like you mentioned is partition seasonal survival rates. So that's a big deal, and a lot of us are really clued into how important that is. So being able to release bands multiple times throughout the year and then compare their recovery rates informs us of when natural mortality is occurring a second important part and i think you hit on it there is sometimes during the year is easier to catch a specific type of bird than others you know like i used to play with the scop data sets a lot back in the day and scop are really hard to catch pre-season banding because they're way up in you know in the hinterlands of the boreal or tundra and cost a lot of money to go band them but boy if you can catch them in february and march where you're sleeping in a hotel and eating at restaurants each day, you know, it helps to to band them during that time of year when you're trying to put radios on to study winter movements. So, yeah, there's a lot of that plays into, you know, when we're putting those markers out.
1: Let's talk about Lincoln estimates. That's, again, that's kind of some lingo that we use. I was actually on a podcast, um, I don't know, a couple of months ago with Jim Ronquist, Jimbo Ronquist, and out of the blue, Jimbo asked me to step through the method of calculating Lincoln-Peterson population estimates. I'm like, whoa, hang on. You did, I, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't forewarn me. I did try to forewarn you that we might at least just a few minutes ago, I think um, before we started recording that we, we would try to step through this, but this is going to be second nature for you, I think because you, you, uh, you deal in this area way more often than I do. So you mentioned that most of our Arctic goose population est- estimation nowadays is done with Lincoln population estimates. Banding data is a critical component of that method. Give us, give us the simple, description of that calculation, how long to, it, it's not really, it's not new either. Talk about that as
2: well. Yeah, that's what's really neat is it's a method that was developed, yeah, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and it kind of just disappeared because we all had to do more powerful stats and do all that. And I remember a fisheries class that gave me my first introduction into stat stuff, you know, they had Lincoln estimates, then I had some Schnabel models, all these neat things. It was the first time I ever got to start dealing with these ratios and really got me excited. But, um, you know, I teach this one quite a bit, talk about it, um, but just try to imagine, you know, the raffles you go to where people are like, hey, estimate how many marbles are in this jar. And uh, that's what I always use as the example. So the, the jar of marbles is the world of how many marbles there are, or geese, prior to hunting season or at the time of marking. You know, there's definitely some going to die off before hunting season. A lot die during hunting season. But this is how many, you're trying to estimate how many geese there are at the time of banding. So what you do is your first handful, you you open up that jar and you grab a fistful of marbles and count them. And each one of them you label, you put a band on them. So this is what, uh, you know, a lot of the CWS folks are doing, Canadian Wildlife Service in late July and early August. And they're going to a bunch of different sites doing mid-continent cacklers, mid-continent white fronts, Lesser Snows, Ross, Atlantic Brandt. And um, so, yeah, you know how many bands you put out. They're all unique. You put them back in that jar, you know, you open up the bird banding pens, let them all mix, close that jar back up, roll it back and forth, shake it up. That's all fall migration. You know, they're going to staging areas in the mid-continent and all of a sudden hunting season opens up. And what hunting season is, is a second time you open up that jar, pull out a fistful of marbles and count how many there are. That's your harvest estimate that we're getting from like the wing bee survey, for example. But then you open up your hand and start looking at how many of those have a mark from that first fistful. And that's where you're using a ratio of how many bands were reported divided by the estimate of how many birds were totally shot. And if it's 5% of that second poll is marked, you know that you missed 90% of that first poll. And so you can extrapolate that initial banding effort, in that case, divide it by 90%, and you get an estimate of how many jar, how many marbles are in that jar, how many geese were in that population in late July and early August. It's, It's actually that simple.
1: That's an outstanding description, and I just want to tell our producer Chris Isaac here that there's going to be a test on that after this episode. So I hope you were paying attention. He, he's given me the thumbs up. He, he doesn't want to come on and, and talk to us, but he's given me the, thum- he's given me the thumbs up. I appreciate that, uh, Chris Nikolai. That was that was a great description of, and hopefully people can can visualize that. There's several different moving parts there, but each of those. Well, at least two out of those three hunters play a vital role in giving us the data. I guess the, the first one would be the actual banding of those birds, then the other would be the harvest and reporting of those banded uh, of those recovered bands. And then the, the third one, these latter two of which hunters play a crucial role is in the, the harvest surveys which tell us what the overall harvest is. We can we can't perform the Lincoln- Peterson estimate. At we, we can't estimate population size from banding data without participation of our hunters in this data collection process. So, that's why we time and time again use whatever medium that we have available to to encourage and emphasize the importance of reporting your bands. So, I, I know I know you and Delta Waterfowl do a lot of the same thing, encouraging people to report their bands.
2: Exactly. I mean, even these years of COVID are really exciting or troublesome. How about that? But it's also making us really think and get down to the bare bones. And you know, we haven't been able to do surveys or the banding's been non-existent. So there's actually some neat potential to actually, you know, as we mentioned before, we use direct recoveries for these Lincoln estimates. But uh, some of my colleagues, we started looking at Black Brandt data. You know, what happens when you don't have releases for a direct recovery and, uh, you know, start looking at, well, can we use indirects? which is still pretty cool. So then you're getting into a situation that the wing bees are still happening. You know, there's a lot of guys, biologists that have been involved with the big wing bees that during COVID, you know, they're getting sent to their houses and they're still doing the survey and we're still getting indirect recoveries. And, uh, you know, it might be if we can get some of these things worked out 100% of the data right now annually is going to be coming from honors
1: yeah exactly exactly the other component or application of banding data that we wanted to talk about here those those four things that you mentioned at the uh, a little while ago is the, the next one that we will talk about is individual based ecology and what we are able to get from it. i know you and your advisor have a former advisor have a tremendous example of how banding data were used to just glean so much understanding on the individual ecology of of Brandt, I believe it was. Tell us about that as an example of, of the, the value of banding
2: data. Yeah, so this is one, you know, where it's more general ecology. This isn't a project. A lot of these projects aren't started to look at harvest rates. They're more for like, okay, there's Fred and Wilma. We banded them with bands that are uniquely identifiable. Let's follow them throughout their lifetimes. You know, like with Brandt, They'll, some of them will live into their 30s, you know, so there's some birds we have in the data set that have bred over 20 times in their life. And, uh, you know, Fred dies and, you know, Bill shows up, you know, and we can keep records of that, of who their mates are. Every year, how many eggs she lays, what year her eggs hatch, um, things like that. One neat one we did was we were able to go around and read bands at arrival. Then we located them during nesting. And then we encountered them a third time when we were actually when they were moving to where they raised their goslings and then a fourth time during banding drive. So here we were able to encounter these birds four times during the summer and do a little 4 occasion capture recapture there to estimate how many birds are there in the summer, basically. Then they migrate off and we had a whole bunch of partners that were up and down the flyway with uh, spotting scopes and able to read plastic tarsal bands you know it's like a metal band but you can read them way easier and uh, we were able to assign where they went in the winter so we knew early january is kind of like when wintering grounds peak and ebb so we could ask we could look at resites before this early january date and then a second one after that early january date and had a two occasion capture recapture and then they'd go back up north So we were doing this neat thing where we had six times in the year that they'd get encountered, no harvest data at all, and then look at the subsequent, you know, did they breed? Did they lay the same number of eggs? Did they change their laying date to a time earlier? Um, Really neat stuff. Um, I mean, we can come – this is the stuff that gets fun as can be of just general nerd bird biology. It's fun. So another part that I think is really neat is – You know, looking at birds, and they have all these thresholds throughout the annual cycle. So with a goose, they got to decide, well, they're alive. You know, it's time for spring migration. Let's get all this fat on, and this is going to be my fuel to get north and my fuel to make eggs. So off they go. Some birds, hey, I can live, but I'm done. I can't lay any eggs this year. Their threshold wasn't met. So they're taking a year off this year. They're kind of out of that year's reproduction. Then you get a bird, okay, I can still lay my eggs. Good. I'll make a nest, start getting on them. But now I got to hunker down and incubate for for quite a while, You know, and storms are coming. And sometimes, boy, I'll be halfway through incubation and I got to quit, walk away from it, failed nest that year. Then what's really neat, this is the fun part, and I'm I'm almost done, but now they can hatch their kids. And now they got to move out and mom's got to molt, get all her reserves back up and dad's watching and being alert and making sure the kids get the best forage but sometimes they get another threshold right there it's like man we we got here we laid eggs we hatched eggs but we're done we're tapping out and some neat studies this is one of the neatest ones i've ever heard some europeans with barnacle geese so you got birds that are like hey i'm done can someone else take them and they're happy to give their kids away but then what's really cool is there's other hens banded hens banded goslings you know who these guys come from And uh, other hens are like, hey, I'm doing great. I'll take your kids. And guess what? I'm going to use them for bait as the predators. Some of these neat studies with marked birds, you get through all these thresholds, these low-quality birds that still made goslings are letting birds take them, hoping they get some fitness out of this. And uh, you'll look at the marked birds, and the adopted kids are actually on the periphery of the family group where they're using them as decoys for predators. You And that's some of the neat nerd studies you know, from following individuals, and I'll I'll stop right there because we could go on with twenty different stories from Mark Birds that that just get these really neat, semi-esoteric questions answered.
1: It's fascinating. You, you describe them as, as esoteric, but I think it's fundamental for us to understand how these birds, how the population of birds operate and the fact that we're now, without that information we would not be able to think about that individual variation and what it might mean for the way we manage. I don't know how much, not necessarily all of this can be easily incorporated into management but it at least allows us to think about and better understand exactly the way things are working uh, and in some instances we may be able to incorporate some of what we learn about individual variation in various aspects of management. But fantastic examples that you provided there, Chris. Appreciate that. And, and yeah, I could, uh, n- nature is, the, the other thing that it revealed to us there through using some of these adopted uh, young as decoys, nature's ruthless. It's, uh, it, it's not always warm and fuzzy and, and cozy. There's some um, pretty selfish things going on out there sometimes. And so, wouldn't have been able to figure that out without individual birds and the observations that come from those. Uh, Chris, we have gone on with another episode here. You and I have remarked a couple of times that time flies by on these episodes, and we still have web tags, neck collars... Oh, and the other big one, transmitters, and how it has, how they have changed and how they are very large parts, have a very prominent role in some of the research that has conduct, been conducted historically and certainly is being conducted now. Uh, so, let's wrap up this episode and bring you back for episode three. You good with that? Sounds good, I'm having fun. All right, a special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Chris Nikolai, waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl, continuing our discussion about individual markers and their use in the science of waterfowl. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does a fantastic job with the editing of these podcasts and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and sharing it with us and for your support, commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.